0: Hello and welcome to the. Hey, if we're in the freaking United States, which we are, just <laughs> to the props to the show, uh, this freaking episode be old enough to drink. Because it's the twenty-first one. Oh, <laughs> I see. This freaking episode could go to a bar at last. I honestly thank goodness, because like I was kind of losing it out there before. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like now that we're into stretches where the where the letter is will the same for the ten same episodes sound, in a row, <laughs> 10 episodes at a time. maybe it's time to abandon this bit. Uh. But at the same time. I don't know. I just love it so much. Also, I feel it's probably, it's really bad for our podcast synergy to con. I heard it's bad to like number your episodes. And so oh. maybe constantly reminding people of <laughs> what episode <they're laughs> exactly on. how many hours they've wasted. <laughs> yes. Or that they have not listened to previous to this and are just jumping in now. Right. If this is your first episode, it's our almost... first episode also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I did think today... <laughs> That's why it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I did have the thought earlier today, a little peek behind the curtain, mm-hmm. um, famously and insanely from many people that I've told this to, This we have not yet released an episode <laughs> <laughs> at the time <laughs> when this came out, which is also insane to us, I will say. Mm-hmm. We have constantly planned to do it, and then either forgot or been delayed for various reasons. One really is coming out this week. You prepare for some fresh Super Bowl talk. <laughs> yeah, and so I was, and so truly I had the thought today: like, should we go back and re-record <laughs> every episode? <laughs> because, like, on the other hand, that's incredibly daunting. But on... <laughs> the other other hand doesn't seem like the worst idea but no Mm. i've made my decision and we will not be returning we're not gonna tailor it what's oh taylor swift yeah i thought you meant like we're not gonna tailor this to what the fans want (laughs) (laughs) uh love it or leave it as i think somebody says in one of these issues Hey, I might as well give the exact date since I've already given all the other context. It's <laughs> July 4th. America, baby. <laughs> Love it or leave it. And also, if you're 21, you could go have a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Do you like this bit? I'm no. not even quite sure what it is, but I'm going to keep doing it. Enthusiastic drinker. Who's now 21 and can mm-hmm. legally drink. Sure. Um, but of course, that's not what we're here to talk about today. We're here to talk about the third and final portion of, you know, sometimes I like to have a little fun and call it Sex Machina, but it's actually called <laughs> Ex Machina, written by Bride K. Vod, penciled by Tony Harris, with some exceptions. Also, we'll uh, also inked by Tony Harris in several of these issues. Sure. Good for him. Uh, we'll get into the notable exception. So we are, of course, covering issues thirty-five to fifty. Yes. Oh, I see. You have written it wrong in the Oops. document, so I'm no longer responsible for this. Then we had to quickly, uh, I had to quickly brush up on a certain issue that was not included in our list of what we had to read. But everything's okay now. We've read it all, and also, of course, specials three and four, Masquerade, and Grassroots. Did you realize that Masquerade is from like several months before the most recent issues we read? I was trying to remember what even the third special was about without looking recently and couldn't. So I'm going to go with (laughs) no. It's from October 2007, which is immediately before Ex cathedra Oh, interesting. So, when I put together the reading order, I pulled it from the trades that I have. So, in the trades, the third special is collected right after the last issue of the, like, Trouble storyline. Right. Which would make sense, but it's not. (laughs) But yeah, so, so I mean, I guess really we should talk about that one first, since it's chronologically in that spot. But then that would mean I would have to do my Just What Is Going On Here episode for it. Uh Uh-huh. Which is, to be fair, it's a great cover. But, of course, I won't be doing that. I will actually (laughs) be doing it for another issue I was not prepared to do it for. (laughs) Issue number 35, The Race. And, you know, someone call up Nick Jonas because of his famous song, Chains. Uh, Yes, we are seeing uh, Deputy Mayor Dave Wiley encircled in chains. Why did I want to say Noah Wiley? Held delicately in the hands of uh, an unknown individual, presumably. I think, I thought he was, Oh, uh, I, I don't know. I thought he was holding out his hands, but that doesn't really make sense no, from a perspective are not, those point of view. His hands. He also is backdropped by, like, the union flag, question mark? But it's, like, hip. It's hypnotizing you. Yeah, and there's and some is that like hundreds of machinery coding that's also like in the stripes couldn't, of the flag for a million dollars. Tell you, I will say, Tony heard me. Tony, Her- <laughs> I, you've heard of the film Tony Erdman? This is Tony heard me. Oh. <laughs> Have you heard of the film Tony Erdman? No. Well, they were going to make an American remake with Jack Nicholson, I believe, but mm-hmm. it never came to fruition. <laughs> Anyways, what I Alas. thought. I was doing my just what is going on here segment on was issue 36, Dirty Tricks part one, which is everything that I've said is missing in a cover. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And not just because of the babes. (laughs) Although you have been vocal that you wanted to see more babes on the cover. I'm always saying this, Um, but it's a character other than 100. Yes, there is it's an action shot there's some dynamism to the cover yes there's some elements of graphic design because like the letters are yeah it's like it's it's a non-standard like just typeface for the title of the book yes and from then on i feel like the covers continue to stay relatively interesting like there's another one in dirty tricks where she's like sort of like leapfrogging over his brain Mm-hmm, which is mm-hmm, a good bit mm-hmm. good just i wanted to give tony his due because we've been really well mostly me have been really ragging on him for his staid covers mm-hmm. he's really turned a corner i feel like indeed so you're welcome tony <laughs> tony herdman tony of 20 2009 i guess at this point maybe well, even 2008 famous comic book character tony we'll get to that Oh, we sure will. <laughs> Let's start though with uh, a Masquerade, which it doesn't really matter where you put it in terms of the chronology because it's one of the it's it's the only issue I think that takes place entirely pre Great Machine. At Actually, least I'll, I'll other say than it, a framing device. Other well, I was gonna say it's the only it's the only issue that I think we've read so far that doesn't have any additional flashbacks or or movements along the timeline. It's all nineteen ninety nine, other than a framing device. I Is will there say. A, okay? Yes, hold on, hold it's about on. the Ku Klux Klan. Oh right, right, right. I forgot about all the all the KKK stuff. Um, I have a note here that says anti mask laws. I freaking wish. <laughs> <laughs> uh pretty good by me so basically uh, we also must point out this is penciled by jean paul leon r.i.p oh, recently really? uh recently died yes so jean paul leon what's, what's his deal he is a great penciler as i believe is on display in these issues um, Sure. i think his biggest like recent thing that he did was uh kurt Busick wrote So Kurt Busiek famously did Superman's Secret Identity, which is like, what if there was a guy named Clark Kent who had Superman's powers, but in our world? And then he did a similar thing for Batman called Creature of the Night, Uh, but it was like a horror book with uh, Jean-Paul Leone. And the premise of it is that like Bruce Wayne, like is kind of like haunted by Batman, who is like a demonic Bat creature that like comes and protects him. It's uh I have I have not read it in full. I read the first issue and it was very good and uh look forward certainly to reading more. But exactly. JPL has uh, has certainly been active in comics for uh quite a while. I guess probably Earth X would be the the sort of bigger thing that he would be known for from previous he worked on uh, a number of the wildstorm or not wildstorm milestone uh comics when they first launched including static which uh, you know is a a signature book of that line and his unlike uh, unlike chris sprouse who we talked about last episode who i felt really adapted his style to kind of align with the look that uh, tony harris had Set for the book, um, I think that uh, John Paul Leon's pencils are pretty indicative of his sort of typical uh, typical style, which is also a good fit for the book and I think that he he tends to do a lot of like pretty detailed renderings of backgrounds and like cityscape backgrounds, which is also kind of Tony Harris's calling card uh, especially in this series. So it makes sense that they would uh, they would think of him. Yeah, um, it almost reminds me of uh, David Mazzucchelli, I almost feel like, like Batman Year One-ish art. Mm -hmm. But yes, I I like the art a lot. And also, it feels particularly fitting for this issue in particular, which is rather uh, grim and dark. Indeed. Speaking of Chris Sprouse, uh, did you know that uh, Mr. Mosby directed like 15 episodes of One Day at a Time, the reboot? No, I did not interesting I was looking at a Wikipedia the a Uh I also frequently get confused because there is a butler on Downton Abbey named Mr. Molesley <laughs> <laughs> I have a hard time sometimes keeping Molesley and Mosby straight mm, it's interesting that you think of Mr. Mosby as a butler <laughs> He is, in fact, of course, the hotel manager. It's true, (laughs) but he is treated by the twins as more of a butlerish figure. And I would also say that his uh, (laughs) his kowtowing to uh, to London Tipton is uh, a little bit more. It's true. Characteristic of perhaps like a major domo figure than uh, a business person. To be sure. (laughs) Eat your gummies. Thank you. I will. But of course, so we're talking about Masquerade, as we mentioned The framing device, political framing device, is that the Ku Klux Klan want to hold a rally in New York City. Um, And then he, 100, flashes back to, is it, I I imagine it's Halloween. Sunday, (laughs) October 31st, 1999. The year we were famously going to party like it was. Sure. (laughs) Hold up, it is. Um, (laughs) I will say it was the for a book that constantly puts the i cannot i cannot overlook the fact that you're drinking from a giant mug right now (laughs) it's my coffee okay look it's barely bigger than my head yeah i I, i'm gonna need a coffee the size of my freaking head (laughs) and by the way i'm 21 (laughs) so it's legal Uh, yes, we? the fact that they constantly put the date, but you're never cognizant of what year it is. Yes, it's the, the same timeline is very confusing, especially when, when January was like, yeah, that painting that happened a few years before Journal died. Yeah, that I was like, that's not right. That's, that's simply not true. true. <laughs> Journal died like six months ago. I meant I, I'm not. Well, even like, not that she died six months ago, but that like. I don't believe there was more than, like, 14 months between when the painting happened and when she died. It just doesn't make sense with when those two stories take place. Yes, I can't imagine that being the case. But back to this issue, it's set on Halloween, as we say. It's basically immediately after Hundred has had his incident. Yeah, he, like, just got out of the hospital. Yes, and, like, has checked himself out of the hospital before his time. His face is covered in bandages. Like, hush. And we see some, like, some very early stuff. Like, the first time he sort of attempts to fight a crime, which fails horrifically. He almost gets shot in the head. Much like Osama (laughs) bin Laden. Certain others we could name. (laughs) In the song (laughs) Finest Girl. We see the first time he has, like, one of his dreams about an object he wants to build, which I believe is the jetpack. Mm-hmm. And then, like, you know, his first contact with Kremlin. And then he meets up with the people who were robbing this pharmacy, which was his first attempt at crime fighting. Um, you know, he takes him out. And then he then that's pretty much the end. But it's sort of like we see, like, his powers awakening, like, where he more so is, like, hearing things and is unable to deal with the sounds of the machines. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's pretty interesting. Not, a, not unlike his original uh, awakening, to be sure. Yes, Oh, wait, I have an extensive uh, piece about this, which is only tangentially related to the article. (laughs) There is some Giuliani talk in this issue. There is some Giuliani talk in this issue, without a doubt. And I feel like we haven't really talked enough about Rudy Giuliani, <laughs> the, the looming presence of Rudy Giuliani in this yes, book, the specter <laughs> Ed, of and Mike Bloomberg, for that matter, who gets a big shout out from <laughs> Mitchell. He's, he's providing necessary funding, extremely, extremely necessary. Ah, oh, yes, I found the relevant quotation. So, yes, of course, the, as you said, the specter of Giuliani looms large over this whole business. And as Bradbury says when Mitchell goes to meet him, nah, just watching the tube, you see this stunt Giuliani pulled? He got dolled up like a broad for something <laughs> with the press. Now, do you know about this? I do not. So it's it's something that has come up in recent years for obvious reasons. There is a, I think it's from, maybe it, it showed up multiple times, but basically Rudy Giuliani has a drag persona. <laughs> Mm-hmm. named Rudia R U D I A very creative who made multiple appearances over the course of his mayorship mm-hmm. like in various like comedic bits basically and like so basically like it's like the New York City equivalent of the White House Correspondents Dinner mm-hmm. it's like we're roasting ourselves hee hee <laughs> and so the one year or multiple years Rudy Giuliani appeared in drag as Rudia,
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's
0: one, there's one particularly famous video where it's Rudia and the man himself, Mister Kofifi, <laughs> Donald Trump, <laughs> and the bit is that like Rudia is trying to like entice Donald Trump, and then mm-hmm. and you know there's some there's some lighthearted sexual assault, certainly. They get Rudea's, a little blue, do they? <laughs> yes, Rudia sprays herself with perfume on her chest, and Mr. Trump really wants a sniff. Mm-hmm. All all this cool stuff, but probably most relevant to your interests. He, the first time the character premiered, he did in fact sing, "Happy birthday, Mr. President." <laughs> Uh, My go-to birthday bit. (laughs) Yes, one of our most famous and most funny bits. Um, I'm going to read a quote from the New York Times here. Uh, The audience of journalists, public officials, and lobbyists greeted Rudia with a huge outburst of applause and hoots of sustained laughter. (laughs) But when it became clear the mayor was actually going to deliver a sustained performance of the outfit, (laughs) members of the crowd seemed torn between being amused and being appalled. (laughs) When he pulled a huge cigar out of his sock and later began dancing an intimate tango with the star of Victor Victoria, Julie Andrews, dressed as a man, Mm -hmm. several well-known audience members could be seen with their foreheads and their hands (laughs) open-mouthed. He was ahead of his time in some ways. (laughs) I guess. Do we consider Rudy Giuliani a A (laughs) trailblazer for the drag scene? (laughs) No. I know you're joking, but I really Uh, can't can't co-sign that. Timeline update. Journal's first meeting with Trista Braving is January 22nd, 2002. She dies on February 18th, 2003. So almost exactly 13 months, not several years. Or even a few years. The other only really notable thing about this issue, which I like, um, it is quite dark. You know, we do see like a beheaded pirate. (laughs) Certainly. Because the guy's just like on a lot of drugs, I guess. But the thing that gets brought up vis-a-vis the Ku Klux Klan is that 100 says, Anonymity is the fastest, most efficient way to let the rest of us know that you and your beliefs are worthless. (laughs) Which just seems like an interesting take. It is an interesting take. I guess not surprising from tough on crime Mitchell hundred. Yeah. <laughs> does he he talks about the Patriot Act doesn't he or is it just that that does issues I don't, sort of allude to? Yeah, I don't think he ever specifically mentions it, but but yes, certainly uh certainly presaging uh internet discourse question mark, but I think it's intended more to be re- reflective on his uh like view of his own time wearing a mask and therefore all right projecting it out onto others yes certainly but uh but by and large i i agree that as much as this is a, a very pleasant issue to look at it does have big fill-in energy <laughs> as far as like what actually happens in it Yeah, well, it is a special. It is a special, although the schedule... I was looking at the Comicron sales charts, and the schedule gets a little spotty uh, Mm -hmm. starting around this time. There are many months where nothing comes out, and sometimes stretches of, like, four months where the only thing that comes out is one of the specials, so... Yes, I noticed this as well. It is a special, and it also still kind of has that fill-in energy. (laughs) Right, exactly. And, like, I mean, like, it's not like there's anything in this... That couldn't just be, like, a one-off issue. Yeah. Other than that, like, it concerns itself primarily with the past, which is true of the first two specials as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can move on to this this one-off issue, a rather odd one-off issue. It is very strange because it seems like it's positioning itself to be Hero's Journey, like, the Wily edition, but it's not really about him And we learn almost nothing about, like, his life pre what we've already seen. Like, pre that that first conversation with Mitchell Hunter about running for mayor. Yeah. So, yes, that's the one one big thing that gets brought up in this issue that sort of has long-lasting repercussions, is that Mitchell is encouraging Wiley to run for mayor, but then (sighs) he... There's no other way to say it. He sees a slave in his office. He certainly, certainly does. Uh, In a very, very strange, unresolved thing. So this whole issue is about he has this... He sees this vision of a slave in his office that he is unsure if it's real or a hallucination or what. He... (laughs) The plot of this issue is also completely insane. Um, he's like, someone must have defiled <laughs> a graveyard, possibly where where slaves were buried, and they look into it. And he's right. And <laughs> Wiley is like, well, at least you solved that ghost problem. And he's like, sure did. Except, of course, we see that he is still seeing the ghost in his last appearance.
1: <laughs> Never yeah, seen again.
0: Yes, and the ghost also speaks. In green text. Yes, the ghost The ghost speaks, um, like, technologies. Yes, say, it's saying, hurry up, which is interesting because this is sort of something that becomes, I think, a more significant part of the book, more after the next arc than with this upcoming arc. But, like, the idea that it's, like, 100 is running out of time, he needs to take action and, like, mm-hmm. sort of get things done, like, that does become a major, like, running thing in the last, you know, 10 issues of the book or so. Yeah. But it's just very strange that this is the way that the... that that idea is expressed. Yes, indeed. I guess that is, that is the other... I, it goes hand-in-hand hand with encouraging um, Wiley to run for mayor, is that it becomes fairly explicit at this point, I think for the first time, that 100 is not planning to seek re-election, which he is like, not announced publicly yet at that point, but I think just by... Virtue of him telling Wiley that he should run for mayor, we can implicitly understand that he's already made up his mind on that front. Right. Um, and then as you alluded to, there's also like a fairly brief flashback sequence in the middle, which is sort of like hundreds first or like an early attempt at stopping crime. He which is <laughs> Yeah, two truant students and is almost beaten up. Yes. Well, he is beaten up. Really, He gets hit with like a baseball bat. Yes, but is saved by Wiley, who basically tells him, don't come back here again. (laughs) Which, hey, good call. Mm -hmm. But yes, it's just a strange issue. Like, it doesn't really have that much to say about race, even. No. Which appears to be the intent of the... Yeah, I I feel like the thesis of it is basically, like, we can never forget that America is built on the backs of slaves basically yes. and this like specter of white guilt that hangs over 100 certainly yeah and yeah I I guess who knows maybe in I guess this probably came out in like 2007 or early 2008 yeah I just I yeah I don't I don't know how much like obviously there's there's some subsections of the American population that seem to need that reminder constantly and also I don't feel like this is like a very new idea or like uh yeah I, I I don't know I, f- I have a hard time criticizing it because it's certainly like comes from the right place, but it's also just such like a weird story that <laughs> doesn't really say anything other than that. Yes. The, the sort of relevant passage, which is against sort of a bit of BKV as Wiley speaking to hundred, the great machine was nothing but a burdened white paternalist who thought he could swoop down out of the heavens to save the helpless people of the ghetto. And then saying that, you know, he's evolved and you know he has like have a more nuanced relationship with the black community now, but that he also like knows he needs to move more quickly, uh, which again, like we said, becomes a running theme throughout this uh, the next chunk of issues, but not this upcoming arc, Dirty Tricks, which is mostly I about
1: do your dirty tricks.
0: carry on. No, keep going. No, That's that good. was it. The next line <laughs> is famously "no more." Certainly. <laughs> <sighs> now it's my turn to start. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so this is this is a very weird arc. This is a very weird arc, and uh, spoilers for issues we will be talking about in <laughs> within forty minutes, I would estimate. Uh, I I do feel that this is where we first sort of start to get more of an indication of like hundreds general path towards outright villainy towards the end game and ooh, yeah I've, this will be such a great discussion I'm excited for it <laughs> can't but wait. for now we, we need to talk about this uh, which is so basically this issue there's a few things going on. Which is that the so the RN, the political side is the RNC is happening in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then, but then some lady is trying to like interrupt it. Her name is Monica. She like is obsessed with the great machine. Public persona is trouble. Yes. Her vigilante name Mm -hmm. is trouble. Such as it is. (laughs) Quite certainly. And her thing, I get she, so I don't even remember what actually ends up being the case here does she actually hate bush or is she just trying to get the attention of hundred i think both i think she is basically like the she's basically like shares kremlin's view on things which is like the great machine was a hero i can't believe this dude has been like such a sellout and now like the rnc is coming to town like under his watch this is crazy i'm gonna ruin it and also get his attention Yes, there's a, there's, a, there's a whole lot going on in this set of issues. Um, and it does it is sort of the start of the end game it does feel like to some extent. But yeah, so her her first thing is that she she somehow rides a motorcycle up like a skyscraper. She I believe what she is intended to be or to have understood to have done is ridden her motorcycle up the stairwells of yes. the the remaining World Trade Center tower. Then she launches over the edge with her bike and pulls her chute, the top of which reads, Bush sucks cock. Yes. So, yes, it is said she is parachuting into ground zero. (laughs) Off of of the remaining tower, as far as I think we're meant to understand. Yes, that is correct. Um, And then she also... Her next move is to... Oh, also, she's very horny because of that. Yes. She says it makes her wet, which is just no good at all, in my opinion. Yes. And then her next move is to graffiti Bush equals Osama on the Empire State Building. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good move. Yes. And then basically, it's revealed that she... Well, it's revealed quite early that she is this tour guide who was, like, saved by 100 and develops this obsession with him and loves him so much. Mm -hmm. And then eventually, she comes in and then is punched in the face after, oh right yeah. she gets a kiss from Hunter. she does get a kiss okay let's let's talk about this scene momentarily because on the one hand blackmailing someone to get a little smoochy not a great look we don't like it <laughs> I don't, like nothing wrong with that <laughs> yeah, that's cool uh, I like it that's how I met my wife no uh, not good we don't like it inappropriate to say the least on the other hand she is a non-violent offender for the most. She did kick that one lady in the face, um, but by and large, like compared to, for example, the guy who set off a, a, like rice and gas bombs and killed several people, who hundred like was able to lay hands on, or um, at a, he has encountered many people during his mayorality who are violent uh, offenders who kill people and then he is face to face with this woman who's primarily wanted for like civil disturbance and graffiti and just like punches her right in the face and then <laughs> says call a medic because like i think i just bruised my knuckles <laughs> <laughs> yeah. very dark look for him i feel Yes. And like a very gratuitous shot of him just like punching this woman in the face. Yeah. Extremely hard. <laughs> With like blood shooting from her mouth. Yeah. This is, this is where like, yeah, the, this is what I'm thinking of. It, obviously, there's other things like he, he in this arc is, uh, like kind of informally offered the ambassadorship once he has finished his term as mayor, um, to the United Nations. But this is kind of what I'm primarily thinking of. When I talk about like it's just a look at him and like his his use of like violence and the things that are like priorities to him in some ways that just like start to take on like a darker cast. And maybe it's because we're getting towards the end where I know that he like some more of his uh, past and future actions like lean towards like out and out evil. (laughs) But yeah, this is this is I feel like a moment where I start to be like now he stops looking like a good guy most of the time. Yeah, like, it's it's not like he's acting dramatically different, but like certain things like his sort of like generally like sarcastic tone, and very pragmatic tone, start to feel much like more sinister, right? Like it moves, it moves from like, utilitarian in a way that is motivated from a place of like, genuine desire for the like, well being of all and starts to move towards like, callousness or or like, self interest yes certainly another interesting scene just that's somewhere in this arc that i wanted to talk about briefly is the scene with leto Mm -hmm. the former comic shop owner which is uh, it's uh, like i'm not sure entirely what to take of it but it's like really really interesting yeah he so he like has he's homeless and like obviously has some sort of mental illness going on where he's like not not fully aware of like Where he is or who he's talking to. Yeah. So basically, like, in the course of investigating who Trouble is, Bradbury is sent to go talk to Leto. And of course, as we know, the comic shop was sold. Yes. And as we now find out, Leto is, like, homeless, living in the stairwell of the comic shop. And then, like, basically, like, is saying, I gave everything to, like, put this superhero costume together. And now you've left me destitute which is something we sort of talked about previously but like the idea of like obviously actions having consequences for a superhero but like to this to this extent and to a character that like was never really portrayed as villainous right like, like the the thing he did wrong was mm, <laughs> like what what did he do that hundred didn't do basically like no. nothing other than like well i was going to say make make hundred look bad which hundred also did <laughs> but yes it is he 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 did nothing wrong that hundred has not also done but is obviously suffering dramatically different consequences yes which also is more interesting now that i have actually read the race in the context that it was originally intended to be like immediately before this arc but yes and then like the, so the big like the button on this scene is yeah, so she's sort of like he's just sort of like going on and on about comics characters and Bradbury's like, hey man, get a grip. And then Leto says, I used to be able to fly. I'm not making that up, am I? Could I really fly? And just that's that's the realness in my opinion. <laughs> Truly. And again, like I'm not quite sure what it's supposed I guess maybe this this is also part of the start of this like sort of more villainous or like showing the darker side of hundreds of actions that it's like, well, the actual people who are like part of this just sort of like get cast off. Like they're supporting players in his story to some extent. Yeah, like he he talks a very good game and in many ways lives up to it in terms of talking about like his his interest in like the well being of all in like kind of a macro sense or a very like zoomed out way. But when you take a close look at the people in his life who like, he says he cares about everyone, but when you look at the people who he cares about the most, ostensibly, or who are closest to him, they are all, like, suffering because of things he's done, or alienated from him, or both. Uh, and that is certainly the consistent theme through the end of the series. Yes, exactly. Also, Trouble is all in on Bush to 9-11, which feels like, you know, she was a forerunner for us all. <laughs> Loose change. Um, Building seven. <laughs> Yes, uh, although the the um, uh, the two flashback scenes of her that I really like are her at the press conference where he announces, like, it reveals his identity and her on 9-11. Those are both extremely good. Tell it to Jersey and throwing coffee in his face is a great line and a great panel. <laughs> yes, this is, so, yeah, like you said, like, much like Kremlin, she is very disappointed that the great machine who is, like, in her mind, like, God status is choosing to hang up his jetpack. Yes. She's she's kind of an adrenaline junkie who had like soured on the idea of New York as an exciting place until she had her like close encounter with the great machine and was like this guy is what New York is all about. Yes. Uh, almost more like more so than like you're actually accomplishing something in the city in terms of like your crime fighting efforts, which certainly is what Kremlin seems to think and like doing good in people's lives that way. She's Like even in this in this section, her reasoning is you were the coolest thing to happen in NYC since Unlimited Metro cards. Like she doesn't necessarily care per se what he's trying to accomplish. She just thinks it's cool that like he exists and is trying to accomplish something. Yes, exactly. And like you said, she throws coffee on him and calls him a sellout. Um, and then in the next issue, we see her basically like at ground zero more or less yeah, it looks extremely harrowing yeah the interaction that she has with the blind guy is uh is very affecting yes and ending it with yes that he's back etc is there anything else we need to talk about in this like uh i don't think so it's it's well there actually there is one thing we need to talk about which is the very end which is kremlin's meeting with susan padillo um and, and really kind of like also, or sorry, Padilla, connecting with what we were just talking about with Leto about like how people sort of like once they stop being useful to him, sort of fade into the background and then suffer the consequences. Kremlin connects with Suzanne Padilla, who is like, I haven't actually talked to him in like a year or like since Journal died, basically. But yes, Kremlin goes to Suzanne Padilla with the uh, the goods that January has gotten him at long last out of uh, the safe in the basement of, is it in the basement of Gracie Mansion or the basement of City Hall? I believe it's City Hall. Yes, that does make more sense about how like random People city are staffers meeting end there. up down there. <laughs> um but yes she she has retrieved that the blackmail file from the governor's office and given it to kremlin who now is giving it to suzanne padilla to be like R- ruin him with this yes which we'll get into after a bizarre issue uh but yes like the i think that this is almost hurt in a way by the fact that it's the last story arc before like the most like, like the conclusion basically yes the story arcs that focus very heavily on the more overarching story and sort of getting to the root of what's going on exactly. Yeah. It, it just, it starts to feel like very unimportant. And yeah. also the fact that it's like no one's getting killed here. There's not a serial murderer. Yeah, there's there's, not- a, there's no serious threat to him or to the city In any physical sense, it is like the the antagonist is like pretty benign, (laughs) all things considered. And it kind of that is sort of at odds with how important some of the political stuff is as far as like pushing Wiley to run for mayor, making starting to make it clear, like ever since his uh, his vision of God telling him that he was going to be president, he has like started to bring more people into the possibility of him looking at some sort of uh, federal office. And the, those are also important parts of sort of the longer running story that, in terms of their significance, really overshadow anything <laughs> that particularly happens with trouble. Yes, like, the it's like, oh, the RNC won't come here, and it will cost New York, like, hundreds of millions of dollars. Like, mm-hmm. it's a very nebulous threat. Yeah, very abstract. Especially since, and, you know, this becomes more of a concrete thing in the coming issues, but if we already know that Mitchell isn't seeking re-election, then, like, anything that's politically driving sort of becomes a little less impactful because it's like, well, he won't ultimately really have to live with the consequences of this. Yes. Um, issue 40, it's a truly insane issue. Oh, it's called Ruthless. <laughs> it is certainly called that. <sighs> Boy, the the premise of this issue is Mayor Mitchell 100 would like to hire a... Uh, creative team to publish his comic book biography as like a charity thing and he is meeting with potential creators to uh to talk about that and we get to witness his uh the interview of the creative team of brian k vaughn and tony harris uh which is insane (laughs) it is it is a crazy issue What what do you think of this issue by and large um, I think there's some really interesting and good parts of it, but also like it seems so ill-conceived, and like I don't know why you would like it's it's a very gutsy thing to do to be like this is a good idea like let's run let's really run with this it's in- it's just it's insane it's insane that he thought to do this and that decided to go through with it and he looks like Agent Forty Seven. He does look like Agent 47, and also that is an extremely accurate depiction of him. Um, Yes, I, I can only agree. I hate the concept. There are some good moments overall. I don't love the issue, which is interesting because I feel like, by and large, when I see this brought up, if it, it, I feel like if people talk about it, it's generally pretty favorably. Yes. Like I, I saw like a contemporary and like it feels like something that like it would hit the newsstands and have everyone talking about it. Like it's so crazy that they did this. But and again, it's also we're, we're in the context of like knowing that we're moving into the end game. And so it's really strange. Like I feel like in a way this is like almost like a special like I mean, yeah. it's obviously a filler issue. Yeah. It it just it feels so outside of the story at a time when the story is becoming so important yeah. that it's like even more jarring. This is the issue where someone says, love it or leave it, specifically Hundred is fighting Oh yes, <laughs> love it or werewolf, leave it dot, 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 in a body bag. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh yes, I like all the Tony Harris pages. There is like a touching segment where Brian yes, it's, Vaughn, it's basically like, like it's basically, like, Brian K. Vaughan wants to, like, do a memoir and, like, explain, at least partially, like, talk why about the he made the book this a little comic. Yeah, yeah, Where he talks about, like, his experience on 9-11, like, being in Brooklyn, and, like, watching all of that unfold. And then there's a great page, basically. Yeah, it's just, like, a one-page thing where he goes up on his roof to—people have read this, hopefully, but— He watches a meteor shower. He sort of has this shared communal moment with other New Yorkers and he really, you know, he feels it. (laughs) I do like the ending of that little scene where he says, and that's it. You know, I heart New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But, uh, so yeah, he has this long and like personal conversation with hundred, uh, who tells him he should move to California to be with his girlfriend um tony harris like completely blows away january and candy uh and bradbury by like showing them his portfolio and then doing some like live sketches yes they, i did think it was a great bit to have bradbury like because like you know he famously uses his real life models yeah drawing bradbury like in the pose is very good yes Uh, And then we get the punchline of the issue, which is extremely good. He has a short conversation (laughs) with Wiley about whether or not it's a good idea to even do this. Um, And then Wiley is basically like... you're taking too long who like do you have the creative team and he's like oh yeah i found my guys and then we get two pages of the uh (laughs) the great machine biography comic ending on like a big splash of him that reveals that it's ultimately written by garth ennis and illustrated by jim lee which is hilarious (laughs) <laughs> yes like it 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 almost feels like this whole issue is just to get that it joke truly truly does and i will say tragically extremely tragically and for reasons that are utterly unknowable in the trade they completely ruin the punchline by omitting the credits section oh. from the big splash page so you don't like i know in the individual issues yeah there's like a huge like the Great Machine yeah, logo. It's like, it's like a yeah. classic, like it's ending credit page. Like, yeah, yeah. Where where Garth Ennis and Jim Lee are credited. This get, yeah. It's completely removed, so it's just the splash page. And obviously, with like art not by Tony Harris, I'm sure someone who is a Jim Lee fan would recognize his work pretty instantly. But the only indication of uh, like anything is in the front page, like the, the very first page of the trade in the credits, there is thanks to Garth Ennis, Jim Lee and Richard Friend for their contributions to issue 40, which is like, yeah, it completely ruins the punchline to take the credits out, unfortunately. Yes, it really does. Um, especially since like, it's also just like very wild that. Because, like, that's barely, that's not the real credits page. Like, it's not like Garth Ennis wrote the whole book. No. And Jim Lee penciled the whole book so like it's very wild that like they chose to do that yeah that, it, that's it's the whole joke the whole joke is completely ruined unfortunately yes uh but we then uh get into the storyline green which is uh oh not the storyline green the issue green which is the uh second special uh, at least in, yeah. oh, wait, in no, the order of grassroots green. it is i believe so yes Yes, it is definitely called grassroots. Oh, oh, uh, huh, this is whatever. It's it's listed as green in uh, in the trade paperback. But yes, the second special. Do we want to talk about this now, since it's pretty like? Yes, this is where it appears in the order of things, and this is where I have it as well. So yeah, basically, this <laughs> this is another like truly. I forget when we were talking about this before, but like this is a truly wild thing to introduce to the universe. And then, like, never follow up on again. <laughs> and I guess it is followed it is, up on. It is mentioned, I would say. Yes, it sort of like in it's it's deep background. Yeah, <laughs> like, very very. It's deep building a deep lore. But yes, basically, the overarching story of this is that some guy murders a tabloid publisher that Hundred like doesn't like basically, mm-hmm. and tells the and police then... that he was ordered to do so by Hundred yes exactly so he insanely somehow convinces the police to let him interrogate the guy which is wild and he turns the camera off and he turns the camera off which like seems like something you would get in trouble for if your police commissioner has expressly told you many many times not to use your powers to interfere in police business yes also i imagine that doing that like is that all like immediate grounds to like get someone off yeah i feel like someone would be watching the camera and as soon as it went off the door would open (laughs) yeah (laughs) be like what's going on your lawyer is going to hear about this truly but yes and then we sort of we see a brief flashback where we see the connection the classic like chance encounter connection between hundred and this guy where hundred lands in the guy's greenhouse And gets blood on his plants, which he then uses to grow vegetables and then eats them. And then unclear if it's real or not, because very uh, big, big, easy Benson energy here but yes particularly because we never see him like use like the speech or anything like that well and i don't think he actually claims to have the speech all he says is that he can hear them so it seems similar to easy well i guess easy we we are led to believe potentially has some ability to talk back and uh, exercise power over machines but as with like all the other people we've seen who through like some happenstance accident have a a weird interaction with hundreds powers and it it gives them, like, a facet uh, uh, or, or you know, they they get, like, kind of an offshoot power or experience as a result. Uh, a, he's driven crazy, it seems, like all of them, and B, it's, like, it's never a perfect translation where they, like, have the same power level or the same power, or what have you. Obviously, Fearson is the one who, like, really gets, like, a full-blown superpower out of it, but even then it is rendered differently by the mechanism of the bird. Yeah. So yeah, the 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 power thing here is kind of twofold. So the two the the effects are one, he can hear plants talk to him, but then also the plants are communicating Hundreds' desires, which I guess makes sense. Later on, we'll have a better understanding why. But yes, they they sh- the plants show him what Hundred wants to do, and so he like becomes Hundreds' loyal soldier essentially. Yep. And and suggests that he has been selling blood yes. fruit <laughs> to like infect other people who we never see. So we have no idea if that's uh, if that's true. And also, like it's not clear whether or not he really is receiving hundreds desires because he says that he was told next to kill the comic book people which like gives hundred uh the idea that he should be like harder on comic book publishers about their like bad environmental practices but i don't think we have any indication that he feels it, like yeah i i don't think we're meant to believe that like oh hundred wanted to, like also hated comic book people and wanted them dead like it makes sense why you can, like, you can sort of see how it would make sense for him to be, like, angry at see the how? newspaper. <laughs> Thank you, Jamie Foxx. For him to be angry at the newspaper guy and that to, like, transmit through the plants. And this guy is like, he wants me to kill him. But it just doesn't, like, flow that he would also, like, have any similar thing with the comic book stuff. Yes, he's definitely completely insane. Not unlike certain other killers we could name. Exactly. Harry but- Hole's... Uh... <laughs> oh what a fun what a fun element of the snowman that doesn't get mentioned (laughs) that the detective's name is harry hole i believe it's actually pronounced like hole or something but they definitely in the movie just say harry hole have you seen the movie no i've seen many trailers (laughs) (laughs) oh i would i feel like i should watch it actually but yes it's like it's set in sweden so Yes. Or Norway. Norway. But yes. Shall we move on to Ring in the New? We shall. Ring out the Old is in fact, I believe, the title of... Uh... I feel like you have some titles that I don't have. Oh, it is It is Ring out the Old, sorry. Uh, but yes, this uh, issue obviously implied centered around uh, New Year's Eve and uh, the one experience that all New York mayors and all pubescent boys have in common the big ball drop oh okay (laughs) uh yeah so the the most important element of this is we see it quite near the beginning of the arc is that hundred officially announces he won't be running for mayor um and then sort of gives himself this task which is to balance the new york city budget and like fix the school system which is something that has been brought up Many times, going back to, you're the beginning of the issue. He basically says like, "I'm going to increase taxes massively." Like he says, he's gonna like like a twenty percent tax increase, something crazy like that on property tax. Putting my money where my mouth is, essentially, Mm -hmm. um, which is very well received. Yeah, universally. Rare to announce massive tax hikes and have it be extremely well received. I do like what he says about taxes, though, uh, where he says taxes are a necessary evil with slightly more emphasis on the necessary part is like, I think, a good uh, like take on sort of like the, I guess it's not really like libertarian per se. No, it's very much not. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They they would be anti-tax, certainly. I don't know. It's it seems like a good like stance to put in his mouth as a guy who like leans republican in some ways but also like really likes to put like a lot of energy and effort behind like social programs as like run and offered by the government to to be like basically like yeah obviously no one likes paying taxes but you do like all this other stuff we do and in order to do them we need money so (laughs) sorry here come the taxes Here come the taxes. Everybody knows that. Here come the taxes. Sure. Um, and then the... So that's like one... It, that That's almost pushed to the side in a lot of yeah, ways. It, it uh, fairly quickly is um, because the overarching Great Machine tangential plot is that a mysterious figure who has purple voice is uh, commanding animals to commit random acts of violence who... Hundred becomes concerned is a returned fearson. Yes, mostly rats. Yes. There's a truly grotesque scene, we don't actually see it, but of like rats oh, yeah, running into a baby's crib. Grisly. And like a splash of blood which is just like, like, I was just like, oh man. But yes, there are a bunch of rats being committed by Pink Voice and we see fairly early on that it's someone in a, du- like the diver or like interdimensional suit yes the same as what zeller was wearing so i think like we as the reader are meant to understand fairly early on that it is not like jack fearson as we know him especially like with the dialogue when he is first shown but i do think we're supposed to expect that when the mask is removed it's going to be an alternate dimension fearson perhaps oh really so i i didn't have that thought i didn't really know who i was expecting it to be I didn't I was not expecting it to be Fearson. Um partly just because like <laughs> this series is very into red herrings. Yes. And like the person who like it first gets brought up to possibly be is almost never who it actually is. So I don't I don't I don't know what I thought really. I was just like, who's this gonna be? <laughs> or that it would be just like some kind of interdimensional traveler in the same way that Zeller was or mm-hmm. something like that. Or But then there's also this essentially is the political storyline that is truly insane um about this white box which yes. is only alluded to we have no idea what it does or even what it is really but all we know is that there's a white box which can You're is talking about potentially... it at this point yes okay, yeah. yes <laughs> i know what it is now <laughs> this potentially incriminating piece of like content that is a white box yes suzanne padilla um like gotchas bradbury by like staging an assault in the park yeah, where really he's weird. jogging and when he goes over to help she's like it's me tell me everything you can about the white box and he's like oh <laughs> yes um and then bradbury goes to if we're, do, do we know exactly where he goes to to, seems like to a, find the box yeah I, seems I like a real New Jersey thing yeah it seems like he goes to a storage locker in Jersey yeah like a truly insane building it's just like a warehouse full of random boxes yes very Raiders of the Lost Ark yes predictably it is in box 100 uh, underneath a bunch of porno magazines classic including I'm looking at one right so the main I, mean, I wonder if perhaps it's like Bradbury's like storage unit and, and 100 was like hide the white box like almost like I don't even want to know where it is just, like, put it somewhere safe where no one will ever find it. Uh, yeah. And so he, he was like, he, I've got all my dad's pornos in my storage unit. I'll just toss it under there. Yeah. he And I, I don't know if he does refer to it explicitly another time, but in the scene where he is actually in this warehouse, he says, I'm at the place. So yeah. But yes, there are copies of Tits McGee <laughs> and then... <laughs> And then there's another one which, like, his hand is obscuring most of it, but all it's all it says is just nipples, cocks. <laughs> <laughs> uh, good stuff, good stuff. Um, but yes, the uh, he has this encounter with Suzanne Padilla, and then immediately goes to Hundred, who like plays right into her hand by being like you should go destroy the box and then she just like follows Bradbury out to uh yes she really plays them she really really does play them let's let's just finish pulling out the the thread of this storyline which i yes. think is the the most consequent well not the most consequential but at, in is, the end it's is, pretty it is a pretty consequential series, series of events certainly so she confronts bradbury who is uh deeply incriminatingly standing with the white box uh in a glowing white in, box. A glowing white box in his hand which uh suzanne padilla confronts him about and basically is like want to change your story and what we learn is or what we have already learned is at this point is that 100 made the box and gave it to bradbury and told him that he was worried about another terror attack and that he wanted him to take the box to a list of like various locations while he was in his isolation tank polling places Well, yes, yes. And so Bradbury looks at the list and is like, these are all polling stations. And he's like, well, so was the World Trade Center on like a primary day when uh, like when 9-11 happened. Offers some like ostensibly plausible rationale for why that might be. Suzanne Padilla uh, reveals that his landslide win, as it's been described to us previously, was in fact a 20,000 vote win, which was considered a landslide because he was so far behind. (laughs) the polls previously (laughs) does not make any sense so to be fair that's not that's not how that word works but yeah it is it certainly is not Uh, bradbury's explanations are or or general explanation is he was visiting polling stations where uh like in districts that he knew they were ahead just to like kind of check on things see how they were going all of the polling stations that he visited are places where 100 was already projected to win. Yeah, basically like offers up some more uh, shaky if ostensibly but, plausible reasoning for why. But, but we know that's not true, right? Because I don't he, think we like I, I well, but think But Mitchell oh, gives him the list before the election. Oh, right? oh, you mean like it's not true that Bradbury was just like checking up on places that he knew he was projected to win or anything yes. like that. Yeah, I'm not, uh, yeah, I think I think he is telling her those things basically to, like, try and, like, put her off. Like, that's kind of his official response, so to speak. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so basically, so let's talk about this. Basically, the, <laughs> I wouldn't even call it an implication, the thesis put forth by Suzanne is that this white box in some way influenced the voting count so, yeah. and allowed the election to be essentially rigged in favor of hundreds? Yes. The first time I read through, I assumed because they have so many times talked about the reason that he was put in isolation was to prevent him from rigging the voting machines. I had always previously assumed that like the he took the box around and it was like sending a signal to the voting machines while he was there. I realized on this reread that because the white like power is control over humans, that what he was actually probably doing was persuade, like influencing the people oh. at the polling stations to cast votes for hundred. That's interesting. I think is the explanation that makes the most sense. But yeah, we yep. don't. And, and like, you know, would would never show up on any kind of. Yeah. But given that we don't know what the white box does, like we never see it in action before it's broken. And like, I don't, I don't think we're actually supposed to have too much conflict about whether or not like he did it. Like, I think he did it <laughs> is is what we're so meant to understand. I believe that that happened. I think the question is, was Mitchell aware of what right. he was did he doing know what he when was he doing? did it? Which I think is a very interesting question. (laughs) Uh, It is an interesting question. I think he did and I think he knew that he could take advantage of Bradbury to go and do it on his behalf without like really damaging himself in any way or it costing him anything. Because as Bradbury says, when Suzanne asks him what he thinks off the record, he says, I don't care if he stole every single vote he got. He was like the right man for the job and If people needed to be like somehow forced to see it, then I don't care. That was like what needed to happen. So he knows basically that Bradbury is already like a zealot for him. It's not going to damage him in any way to ask him to do something that most other people would be like, seems pretty shady to me. (laughs) Yeah. That even if he had told him the truth, like there's a good chance he still would have done it. Yeah. And and knew that like basically like he could get away with it clean the same way that he does with like suiting up as the great machine in the finale. Yeah, I it's a, it's a very interesting question. I I'm not 100% sure what I what I think. I'm I lean towards him not knowing about it. So basically at at the same time that this is happening cause, so we can sort of get into the the nuts and bolts of this whole thing, which is truly wild, but so I'll I'll lay out the landscape as I understand it and you can tell me if I'm off base in any way. Sure. So basically so while this is all happening with the white box, Mitchell has discovered that the guy in the diver suit who's using the pink speak is in fact a pink box <laughs> and is basically a robot. And that so he has been sent. So basically, here's how it works. There's this group of people who are like they're they're sometimes called the builders or the makers or things like that, who are interdimensional travelers. Who use like who travel between dimensions and basically like capture Earths from different dimensions and then like harvest them until there's nothing left of them and then move on to the next world for them to like use use the resources of and the way that they accomplish this more often than not or maybe every time is by using like whatever version of Mitchell Hundred there is they grant him these powers. And then like put him into positions of power and then basic or or use him in combination with other people. So so what the box says is step one was using a, uh, was using violet to corral your beasts of burden, which is fearsome. Step two was using the red to destroy your crops. Do we ever see this? We don't ever see it. But the suggestion is that is like the guy who we just met in the right. The plant guy. Or he is like three, adjacent to that. Yes. Some some real, uh, I believe Mitchell actually specifically references swamp thing at one point. He does indeed, which is you know a lot. Uh, step two was using the red to destroy your crops. Step three was using the green to cripple your weaponry. Step four was using the white to subjugate your soldiers. So basically, like all, in a very like Green Lantern spectrumish way, these different colors provide control over different like spheres of existence that then like allow the the I don't know what to call them, the makers to like gain complete control over this world and then just come in and turn it into their own personal hell, basically. So what I'm not clear on, because we, (laughs) there is one point where I will say at the end of this arc or at the end of the next arc, I suppose, suzanne padilla is thrown into hell yes (laughs) well one of one of the used up worlds but yes basically she she goes the way of gumby pokey and ray crab and uh is cast into hell but yeah so so are we to take it that like it almost reminds me of tenet in a way Mm -hmm. are we to take it that these are just humans from a different earth who are like We used up our earth and we now need to go to some other earths and get things done? Or are they like demons of some description or monsters or something else other than humans that are like, we must conquer all the worlds and defeat the humans? Here is my theory, which is also like an extra little wrinkle. I, after this reread, my working theory is that the builders are all Mitchell hundreds and that he is like the Genesis a, like a Mitchell hundred is the Genesis of this whole like interdimensional thing. Right. And that what they do is like build a green box, send it through. It hits a Mitchell hundred. And then when he is there, cause we see that the green box basically gives him the capacity to build the white box, which, which like gives transfers the power and that like, Various ways of interacting with him have also granted the other ones. So I think that he could build like a pink box, a red box, green box, white box, etc. So I think that he is supposed to like get hit and then through like the influence of his like expanded extra dimensional awareness from the accident. In whatever way that particular hundred sees fit he is supposed to either um, build like the boxes to allow himself to do these things or to enable others to do the things as like laid out but basically that he is supposed to like prepare the world and then build the opener and I guess like the theory is that you can only open the door from the side that like you're already on which is why they they like can't send organics across they have to like have someone open the door from the other side basically So, yeah, I I think he's supposed to then build the opener, open the door, and then whoever is, like, supposed to come through, whether that's all the other hundreds and other people or, like, what have you, they all come through and have a new world to, like, set in on yes so i think yeah as far as like the the like demon-esque figures that we see i think there are lots of like possible explanations just based on the fact that like it's an interdimensional sort of thing i'm sure in some cases we're seeing like basically the consequences of living on one of the like used up worlds i'm sure in other right. cases we are seeing that in this dimension everyone is a demon <laughs> But yeah, that's that's kind of where I have like increasingly gone to over like the course of rereading these issues this time around. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm now, so I'm I'm way ahead here. This is issue forty-seven, um, and also I think the idea, or at least the sense I got, was that the the dreams he is like he is almost being sent these dreams in a yeah. way that are influencing him towards like building either like weapons or you know other things that will work to the advantage of the let's call let's just call them the makers for the sake of simplicity sure um, but so yes and then, so then in issue 47 he has another dream which gives a lot of context which i i think we're essentially meant to take at face value yes and and same with the dream that he has in the finale yes that's a, so this guy who Surprise, surprise, is another Mitchell. He says, you know, our that, world... That is, though, the first revelation of, like, an alternate yes, that universe alternate. Mitchell. Yes. Yeah. yes, it's very true. That is that is a surprise moment. So he says, like, our world was like yours until pollution war, and disease destroyed it completely. So we sent out beacons like this one in hopes of finding a bridge to a new home. And, of course, you know, Mitchell reveals that that is essentially a lie, or at least that this is not the most recent... This isn't the first time that they've like gone to another world, yes, to eat it up. Yeah, and so the, this is what like the scene that kind of prompted my like it has always been various Mitchell hundreds because he describes himself as your father and says that he is the one who made the green box that converted Mitchell the the hundred that we know. Right, and we also there's a later scene where we see many alternate universe versions of Mitchell. Yes, in the finale uh there's one where he has a cape <laughs> yes that's uh that's the one that i theorize was the original design that uh that brian k vaughn had in mind for the great machine costume before tony harris was like let's like steampunk it up a bit here yes it's a very super superman-ish uh outfit yeah but yeah, so, so we have kind of folded into the next arc as well just because there's a lot going on in these <laughs> There last is there issues. is a lot going on. Well, let's let's quickly wrap up um the other the other arc. He so we yeah, you already talked about the encounter he has with the pink box. Yes, he and also I uh, uh, I wanted to mention that he puts on the costume. Yes. that the fortune teller predicts of him. Yes. The extremely like a, kind of like cool it's not like, as cool as her vision of no, it. No, it's <laughs> not. But yes, it's like the pulp hero version of the costume that has like the double-breasted like doublet type thing, and is like a full face mask with uh, with like glowing goggles. Yes, and the double laser pistols. Yes. So he he resolves the uh, rat crisis by shooting it. <laughs> <Which> <laughs> quick, quick and effective, but. Uh, that that yes. pretty well so, wraps things up the the main thing that we didn't talk about yet that we need to is that bradbury smashes suzanne padilla in the face with the white box which grants her the white powers <laughs> please do not <laughs> please do not take that extremely clean audio of me saying white who clark's clan white powers <laughs> it grants her the white powers and and like as with everyone else who has been transformed except but also maybe including hundred uh she is like her personality is overwritten and she's driven completely insane a lot of Killer. Yeah. yes i understand so, so another question so the pink the pink robot yeah why is he se- i know they they refer to him as a probe yes or he refers to him, it refers to itself as a probe. Yeah, I believe it says that it was sent specifically to find out why Hundred has not been doing what he's supposed to be doing, and he is one of several that was sent to do so. Right, I was sent to determine why you have not completed the mission that came with your abilities. Yeah. So he like he came over. He basically like stirred up trouble in the way that he knew was most likely to get Hundred like on the hunt for him. <laughs> And then when he had him alone, was like, what's the deal? Right. And as it gets mentioned in one of the final issues, but the sort of the idea that for every, as he puts it, as one of the hundreds puts it, for every one hun- oh wait. Are there a hundred of them? Whoa. Who knows? This, this just got they so do all much call deeper. him One hundred. Yes, exactly. That for every 100 that is like fighting against them, there are two more that very willingly get on board with him mm-hmm. with the whole concept of ruling the interdimensional universe. Yes, and of course, that is told to us by the Mitchell 100, who is a head mounted on spider legs, a.k.a. Scuttler. <laughs> sure. Um, but yes, and so, so that is technically the end of the arc, in a sense, but really it leads very directly yeah. into the next arc pro life. <laughs> yes. Uh yes, it certainly goes uh directly into that. We get Suzanne Padilla's emergence as like arguably the scariest villain that he has encountered. Yes, I would agree. So yes, so she is as is alluded to in the previous arc. She is looking for the opener, which is we see in a flashback basically like an early what Mitchell thinks is an early prototype of the laser pistol that just does not work properly. Which, uh, hold, let's let's discuss this quickly. He he uses it to confront a guy who, what is his deal? (laughs) He's (laughs) wearing a beret that says to hell with Hitler and also has a Hitler mustache? (laughs) What is going on (laughs) with this guy? Is he like, I was so confused by what he was supposed to be like is he reclaiming the hitler stash is that why he has that i don't think so i think he's <laughs> like a crazy like he's like an army vet slash an Easy benson type yes he's just like a, a he's like a crazy guy of the military of the really into the military bent who like has kidnapped his son and is like holding him hostage with a huge shotgun pointed at his head i am seeing here that let let george do it to hell with hitler in the u.s is a 1940 black and white comedy musical okay yeah i i didn't notice his hitler mustache before i would imagine to hell with hitler is an anti-hitler sentiment <laughs> seems like but i just do why does he have a hitler mustache it's, like, it's a fair question and i don't have an answer for you <laughs> i found um, it very confusing and spent a geez. long time looking at those pages <laughs> like much is longer than they warranted figure to like only briefly show up in a flashback i also like, thought when he first appeared that he was kremlin and they were doing like a training drill of some kind where right. it's like, what would you do uh, yeah, if I can see that. if I had like a kid and a, a shotgun to his head? And I was like, yeah, hey, Kremlin looks a little off model here. And then I was like, wait <laughs> a second. <laughs> yes, but the but the actual important thing that I agree with you, it is crazy. I just because really like distorted. it's such a it's such a small snippet that never like comes back again, and it is not really germane to anything. That, like, it's crazy that, like, it's such a weird character <laughs> with such weird behaviors and, like, very specific, like, attributes. Uh, but, yes, he, he had previously thought he was making a pistol, and then when he fires it, it opens a portal, and he's like, I guess it doesn't work. Yes, and, and the, the guy looks on in horror and says, they're coming through, turn it off before they come through, um, which Mitchell does so. And there's a great moment where it's like, the portal closes on some kind of organic matter that is like attempting to cross through, and there's like an explosion of blood with a kazap sound effect. <laughs> but yes, so we we aren't we da- aren't shown until the end of this arc exactly like what the opener is all about, but we are we understand that it opens a portal to some kind of horrifying place. Yes, she oh yeah, and then there's also this part where the the FBI lady calls him. Yeah, she Talks about she Jackson George. the Lilith. Uh, what's her name? The, yeah, the the FBI agent he has interacted with a few times calls him uh, about the pit that uh, Easy Benson famously stared into and uh, was driven mad by, slash, perhaps in fact as he claimed, given techno powers. Yes, um, and also there there's a I didn't even catch this the first time, but there's a very brief reference that. Some reference to the fact that there are eleven dimensions of space time. Yes, they they do bring up uh, Witten, who we talked about. Uh, is he the brain guy? He is the bra- he's the brain guy. Slash, he's the like, brainiac. He's, he's the brainiac. He is the guy who has like yeah this this quantum physics theory about uh, like uh, ostensibly alternate dimensions or or like plurality of dimensions, and was directly referenced by Connie Jarge during her deranged ramblings uh to mitchell yes um and so basically so suzanne's her ultimate goal is to kill all humans (laughs) is that no her ultimate goal is like she she basically has like properly received whatever like reprogramming 100 was supposed to and her ultimate goal is to like open the portal and let the people through Yes, but it seems like she wants to kill everyone first. I think she does that to, like, basically try and distract um, Mitchell so that she can open the portal in peace. Right. So, yeah, so her and the way that she does this is by going on the radio and using her to and to be clear, I don't know if we've made this explicit yet, but. She has the white voice, which is like Mitchell's voice, but instead of controlling technology, she can control humans. Yes. Other than a select few, like, it seems to be, like, proportional to your overall willpower in some way. Yes. 100, like, resists, I think resists fully. Yes. It has no effect on 100. Which which may just be a consequence of, like, you know, he's got his powers, he built the white box, blah, blah, blah and his mother also resists like for a time but ultimately not yeah. successfully. But yes, and so and another thing that starts happening around this time is like we see Mitchell behaving extremely ruthlessly. Yes. So like there there's there's a a sort of match cut here where his mother says like that boy is the gentlest soul this city has ever produced. Mm. <laughs> And then it cuts immediately to Mitchell saying, "Forget warrants, kick it down, however many doors it takes to find her," mm-hmm. and and obviously like the very existence of the white box and that Mitchell is so like afraid of it getting out and all this stuff like it injects this element of sinisterity and and also the fact that like <laughs> the political side of this is like this abortion debate where Mitchell sort of like refuses to to state his position. But it sort of indirectly alludes to himself being, like, pro-life. And Ray, who <laughs> appears for the first time in a long time, rightly sort of points out that he is, like, moving himself more towards the center in order to position himself for a possible presidential run. Yes. Yeah, I think it, the revelation of the white box casts like sort of a retroactive shadow over everything else he's done because and and like is obviously important to understanding his character and sort of like the context of the things that he does in these final few arcs and especially like the character as we come to see him in the finale yeah I, he he like throughout these is not only acting more ruthlessly but the the like sort the focus sort of shifts away from like the the lionization in hero of heroes in some ways and on to like it it's still about like how do we treat heroes politically but also like the power sort of side of the equation comes into it and and like we or or like Mitchell was put in office because he used his powers in a way that benefited people in like a very public way, ostensibly. But actually now we're finding out maybe he's in office because he misused his powers in order to like manipulate a system into putting him in power. And now he continues to use use his powers to keep himself in those positions and advance himself into positions of greater power. But because like his thesis from the beginning has basically been like political power is ultimately more powerful than my like superpower power, his political powers are the ones that he now uses to like continue to advance himself and continue to um, like secure and consolidate his power and then expand it. Yes, very much so. And also like this idea that like we, we see him sort of shift from using his power in like ways that at least he, it seems like, you know, like I don't think we're meant to believe that this whole time, like everything he says has been a front up to this point. Like... No. Um but I do think like kind of like we were talking about in the like the trouble arc I think increasingly it becomes clear has been clear and becomes like more crystallized over these like last few issues that it's true that he like intellectually at some level is interested in like the benefit of the collective and like in in the well-being of all people hypothetically but he is like very willing to sacrifice individuals to accomplish that yes and i think also like the fact that a lot of the the, well the previous arc mostly with the white box but like we sort of see that once his power is threatened then he sort of like shifts from being altruistic towards more protective of like maintaining his own power yeah and i think also like after ex cathedra, where he has this vision that he is going to become president, he becomes like much more set on achieving that goal, despite any you know, potential costs that might arise from that. Mm-hmm. So, Mitchell's mom's head yeah gets popped like a grape certainly cord like an apple as we like to say we do like to say that <laughs> i did think it but it didn't feel quite it, d- it does not feel quite right because really what it gets it gets popped like a champagne cork <laughs> <It's> probably <laughs> a little bit more accurate it doesn't fe- it didn't feel quite right but her head was quite ripe oh yes she is violently murdered uh by suzanne padilla who rips her head off rips her dang head off I thought he she squished her head. Do you think she Does ripped she, it off? I thought, yeah. When I was reading it, I thought she ripped it off because isn't she holding it in her hands? No, she 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 detonates that head. <laughs> <laughs> we do not see the head again. But yes, and so then, like I said earlier, she gets on this the radio and instructs everyone to raise hell. <laughs> we see some truly insane shots. Um, this woman, she's biting a man's face. A father throws his daughter yeah, at the wild, window. Wild, wild scene. But yeah, and so basically, you know, everything pops off. It, uh, it happens. Mitchell... I believe she's She she takes over the radio station uh, of like the guy who like tried to gotcha Mitchell yes. in the Fierson. The and uh, origin story. It is the same like guy. Like Dre for sure. Dre Marcio something. I don't know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh. he's he's the the guy who like interviewed hundred and was like what's your position on the death penalty (laughs) yes exactly it is that guy for sure but yes and then so how how does this all get resolved we see father z is another thing so yes we do see father z the way it gets resolved is mitchell so mitchell finds out about his mother being dead but then when he hears that like people are going crazy everywhere he's like oh this is like a suzanne thing he gets people to pull the audio of her like issuing the command, and then contacts Kremlin to be like, "I need you to do the same thing you did that time that we somehow knew this would work against Fyerson and play it like in reverse over the radio, so that people stop doing this." Uh, and then he suits up to go and confront uh, Suzanne Padilla wherever in she like may a, be found. In like a combo version yeah. of his outfit. But yeah, so and it ends up being at Coney Island. Yes. Yeah, so the big the big reveal here is um, there are a few big reveals. There are, there are this several. Whole, this like last like ten pages of this issue is like it's basically where like a lot of things get wrapped up in a way. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> there are the big reveal I was alluding to was Suzanne has secured one of Mitchell's power dampers as her like yes. uh, I'm gonna like pull this out as my trump card when he comes to confront me. Uh, and when he she does so, he reveals that in fact it is a like garage door opener with the batteries removed and it does not and never has had any impact. Yes, on there his never powers. there never was a power nullifier. And are are we also meant to believe that the, the sensory deprivation tank did also not act as an nullifier? No, but I- but there's like a limit to his like range, right? So. I think I think the like being in the sensory deprivation tank and being in like a removed location did everything it was supposed to, and that's why he still that's why he still had to send Bradbury around right. with the white box. Right. Yes. And so, and what also happens at this point is we do see the opener being used properly. Yes. Um. So the the guy the robot in the diving suit refers to himself as one of the seraphim. Mm-hmm. And, then, and what we do see is like almost like w- Warren Worthington, like, angel cyborgs. Well, these are these are the same, um, like, sort of angels that flew with Mitchell in his vision of Deco right. God. And then Suzanne is herself, as we said, tossed into the portal. So here are some of the <laughs> <laughs> things that are seen in the portal. One thing, I, I didn't even consider this before, but... So there's, like, a very crazed-looking man... With three eyes. Who, Yes, he has one green eye, one red eye, and one white eye. Yes, Um, obviously alluding to the different powers of the different colors. Yes, Uh, he also appears to have a squid body. He does, and he also kind of looks like Zeller. He does. Uh, There are some bats, but but also he also kind of looks like Tony Harris. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) who's to say? Yeah, it's like it's like very. It's a notably different art style. Like, yeah, he. We, we'll talk about the art a little bit more once we finished talking through, like, the whole plot and the finale and all that, but he does some different things in these last few issues for sure. Yes, they're very, it's very, it's much more, like, stylized. There are skellingtons, there's just a, a crazy-looking guy with yeah. some weird hands. <laughs> He's saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. Yes. Um, and, and Suzanne dies basically saying, like, this isn't right, you can't do this to me, I'm press, I'm press. <laughs> Good bit. So, it I like else, it. Like, such, a, such a mean-spirited bit by BKV, it feels like. Uh, it is funny. It is funny. And then the cops show up with bows and arrows. Classic. To take down Mitchell, as they always said they would. Yes. But then <laughs> there's a, a somewhat confusing reveal. Well, so the the second last issue ends with Commissioner and uh, like holding him at arrow point and january who has had a change of heart after having like been held in the thrall of suzanne and used as like kind of her puppet for a lot of what she did and now having been saved she she has come all the way around on the great machine and is advocating for him but uh, but we end with the last page is him with his hands up uh, at bow point yes um and so he attempts to fly off his jetpack is hit with an arrow so he's like leaking fuel Yes, and then so there's sort of like there's I th- I guess the idea is that there's something we don't see. Yeah, in so between he, two pages, he, a good use of gutters. He flies away and is talking with Bradbury about their rendezvous, and then on the next page we see. Yeah, we like cut to a reporter who is reporting, and then like someone in the great machine costume comes crashing down behind her. Yes, and it's it's revealed to in fact be Bradbury, but so. We know that that wasn't Bradbury the whole time. Yes, right? because we see him use his powers many times, right. and uh, and yeah, that he does even even in that like the split between his kind of out of control flight and when he comes crashing down behind the reporter, we see him using his powers. So. We are to understand, I think, that he basically meets Bradbury on a roof somewhere, they do a quick switch, and then Bradbury, like, jumps off the roof. (laughs) Yeah, Brad... So, I guess the main thing that confused is, like, you're forcing Bradbury to, like, fly into a truck with a leaky (laughs) jetpack. Like, the the Uh, crash is very unceremonious. The crash is very unceremonious, which, to be fair, he's never flown the jetpack before, and it is damaged. sure. Sure. i'm not blaming his flying skills certainly yes and and january is not privy to any of this but in her new found loyalty instantly backs up what uh, what bradbury is saying and claims that he was the one who saved her and we learn that yes. the resolution it was as we've described um Kremlin was able to do the uh, reverse uh, and 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 the broadcast and there's lots of like heartwarming stories of like the heroic ways in which New Yorkers stepped up to help each other out during the disaster etc etc but yes. the yeah this is we're of course now in the in the finale and it kind of like sort of zips through the late stages of his uh his mayoral career and then the life that follows Yes, so we we see him as has been mentioned before becomes the UN ambassador. The big piece of which is revealing the like his memorial to basically it's like it's like a combo nine eleven mm-hmm. what's with, and like the 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 white attack the white out, and then also what was the what was uh, the, the, the gas was the other attack? One? Yes, no mention of the other serial killers that were around <laughs> in the last fifty issues, but. Um, and so, basically, the basically the memorial is we're bringing back the Second World Trade yeah. Center building. The Freedom Tower uh, is here <laughs> exactly as it was. Yes, it's uh, it's like it's yes. Well, it does. It has that spike on it. Yeah, much like the real, the original one did. Yes. One world. Yes. Yeah. So we we kind of skipped the the intro, which is that we're back with like. It's kind of like as told by present day Mitchell and we start out in the same scene that we saw at the very beginning of the first issue which is him kind of like telling the story well having a having a sip of the old whiskey uh, and we learned that the person such as it is to whom he has been telling the story this whole time is his own jetpack right. But so we see, we see, like we jump back to present day, uh, Mitchell, and see that January has continued in whatever role he maybe you know uh, as his like personal assistant, or or she's she's still very much involved. And when we see her in present day, in contrast to like the very punk look that she had during her uh, like mayor's office days, she is now really looking mostly like journal. Yes, like has quite her buttoned up. has her hair grown out, and yes, and is looking quite buttoned up is a good word for it. Although there don't appear to be any buttons on that dress, so <laughs> who can say? Zipped up, <laughs> yeah, zipped up, and yes, there there's a there's so sort of like the uh, not maybe not quite big enough to say it's the thesis, but this moment where he is talking to the jetpack and he's saying like basically like if you die young, then you don't like you don't have the upper. It's sort of a die here or live long Mm. enough to see yourself become (laughs) the villain type of thing no happy endings only happy pauses is the like guiding philosophy of this finale yes and also like for someone to win everyone else has to lose i think is also yeah an important idea that gets that gets brought up we see another our last like truly insane dream sequence which we've already talked about it is the like the manifold hundreds in in various different costumes all of whom are hundreds who have helped to you know advance the cause of the makers in some capacity yes so let's there's one that's just literally the rocketeer yeah (laughs) love it uh there's like an android looking one that has like a pat like an iron there's an iron man one basically yeah are these all meant to be like i don't think they are all homages There's like a weird squid armed one. (laughs) Yes. He's in a robot suit with squid arms. There's one who as a jet pack has like an actual jet engine. (laughs) There's one who is like kind of like brainiac looking who is like Uh, ultra, ultra high tech. There's one that is like very explicitly kind of evocative of a soldier. Like he's got like grenades on a bandolier and carries like a rifle. Right. This one with like bat wings, yeah. And of course, as we mentioned earlier, there is a Superman one, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so basically, and then the idea of this sort of thing is that like he's not the uh, it's other not over Mitchells till it's over not... is is I think what we're meant to take away. Well, my, the takeaway. So what, what the way he sort of puts it is, I'm not your reflection. He, you know, he references, I'm the Walrus, classic BKV. Mm-hmm. But the idea is like. I'm not like a dark version of you. I am. you. I'm just, yeah, Yeah. I am you. Like we are all the same person at the end of the day. Yeah. I think, I think this is like gets into the, uh, no happy endings, only happy pauses where it's like in, in the classic superhero story, like he, he closes the portal and destroys the, um, like the opener. And like, that's it. Like he's saved earth from interdimensional invasion, but he still has these dreams. He still has these powers, And, like, the the looming threat of invasion is still very much there. And and it seems like it's finally something that he's started to take seriously because he is talking a lot more uh, in, like, these last few issues about how he needs to pursue higher office because he's the only person who can, like, continue to keep Earth safe from this threat. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to me it's almost like, and this is sort of the implication of, like, that we are all the same person is that sort of like, this is the version of Mitchell where his power, like, it's like, this is where the way that he conquers the earth is via political. means. Right. He is, uh, he, he's like the version of Superman who is also the president. Right. Exactly. Calvin they, Ellis. That, like, sure. That, you know, of all they there, you know, all of these Mitchells have like con- basically conquered the earth in different ways yeah. and that the way that he does it is like just through like soft power, yeah, political power. I, yeah, I, I do think that it's kind of implicit about his character that he thinks he's gathering like gathering this power as his means of resistance, but failing to, to see the ways in which he is just like subjugating his earth in his own way um, that is ultimately not different from the ways that the other Mitchells all subjugated their earths. Right. Um, we then get this scene with Bradbury, a sort of weird scene. Bradbury's had a had a tough, <laughs> tough few years. Yeah. Bradbury's had a tough go. Like he went to jail for a little like, bit. Hailed, yes. He is hailed as a hero. He still has problems with his ex-wife and hit her. He, yeah, it's, it's interesting what he says. He says, I remember things now. I remember everything we did to her, referring to Suzanne. Uh, to fearson and to us which which kind of like seems to suggest that he in some ways has like had his eyes opened somehow to the ways in which he like was used by mitchell slash like i don't want to say allowed himself to be used but yeah just like some of his perspective has in some way changed on those days and he now mostly looks back and just sees like violence as opposed to actually accomplishing anything Yeah, and to me, that almost feels like he's coming at it, like, it almost feels like he's, like, looking at it from the perspective of the makers, where it's, like, we did these things to her, to Pearson, and to ourselves, which is, like, Mitchell and him, Mm -hmm. basically, that, like, all of them were, like, sort of poisoned by this whole endeavor. Like, and, you know, Suzanne very directly, because he was the one who gave her, like, the hitter with the white box and imparted that white boxitude onto her. And so what what did what do you make of this part? Where basically Bradbury confesses his love to Mitchell and like, you know, is basically essentially going in for a kiss of some kind, Mm -hmm. which Mitchell rebuffs and then Bradbury, you know, reacts violently to. Yes. Punches him in the face, drops a slur. Classic. You know, not I don't think A characterization of a guy who is wrestling with his own sexuality and in a confusing situation and in like a very emotionally vulnerable situation and drunk. Yeah, you know, I it just feels very typical to me. (laughs) It is pretty bkv It is also, I think, the like most effective use of a slur that he has done thus far. Maybe, but maybe the Lincoln painting. (laughs) 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 I think this and the Lincoln painting are on the same level in terms of like, is it the best choice? Probably better for other people to say. I think as far as like the point that he's making or what he's trying to communicate about the characters, it's an effective use. Yeah, I I feel I just feel like we've seen this so many times, like. The like manly guy who's actually like a repressed gay man, and then he like punches the person yeah, after right. he is re- like reacts violently. have seen this when, many when times when he's exposed to his own sexuality. Yes, and so, but just like, what do you make of this characterization in general? Because it se- it's it seemed to me to come out of nowhere. Oh, of of Bradbury as gay. Yes, I and as like of being in love with Mitchell. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's like. You don't. Again, I, I have read it before. I knew that this was coming in the final issue. I wasn't reading it specifically with an eye to this reveal, but I don't think it doesn't make sense. Certainly, and I don't think like there's not exactly like a ton of groundwork laid here, other than like Bradbury's intense uh, like loyalty to Mitchell yeah. that we see throughout. Yeah, I, I, I'm kind of, like, neutral on it. Like, I, I don't think he laid, like, a ton of groundwork for it, at least in terms of, like, overt, like, text. But I don't think that it's, like, completely out of nowhere and makes no sense. Yeah, I guess, to me, like, it just feels like to put it in the final issue in this context makes it feel like it's, like, well, like, you never intended to actually explore this character, obviously. It's the last issue. And so, like, and so instead, this is a reveal which like just feels kind of weird to me. And especially like when like the reveal is like, he's going crazy. Look at him. He's even turning gay. <laughs> is kind of what it feels like to right. me. I don't, I, I wouldn't have characterized it in that way per se, but, but I think that's fair. Certainly. Yeah. Just, just having it be like, and that's the, that is the last time we see him. right? That is the last time we see him. I do think that it's, almost supposed to be as much about mitchell as it is about bradbury like we're oh definitely yes the, the part that we didn't talk about which i did mean to bring up but i want to talk about that first is that bradbury is like very clearly in like out of sorts and reaching out for help and mitchell is saying like turn yourself into the police <laughs> And this is this is a bad time for you to be doing this because I'm running for yes. president, and you're going to make me look there's bad. If a, you're there's crazy. a bit of a bait and switch where, yeah, Bradbury is like crying out for help, almost literally, and Mitchell like begins as though he's about to offer like some consolation or some help or support or something, and then is like, "I need you to get out of here because this looks really bad for me." Yeah, and then and then I'm also thinking of like the attempted kiss which unfolds extremely slowly like there's several panels of of bradbury like moving in and their dialogue and one panel where i think we're meant to think like he's really thinking about it like he's yeah it's an interesting like ties into the portrayal of his sexuality yeah considering how much discussion there was of his sexuality in the like early part to have this like moment where It seems like he's like maybe going to accept it and then ultimately rebuffs it is kind of like a final button on that whole thing of like it doesn't really matter whether like 100 himself is like gay or straight or asexual or what he has at every juncture been willing or shown as willing to use other people's attraction to him as a tool to manipulate them and to advance his own purposes. Yes. And and it's him rebuffing human intimacy in a very literal sense as well. Yes. So, so we go on to another scene with with candy, the great candy, but they're like in the Midwest doing some kind of like, yeah, yeah, they're campaigning and he, it's not going well. But the, the the it's more important as a character beat, I feel like, because Mitchell is sort of realizing that, like, his, the his, which is sort of something we've seen in the past, that his closest allies are, like, not there for him because they have, like, lost faith in him at this point. Yeah. And, and that his, like, yeah, his, uh, his sort of, like, brand of independent that appeals very strongly to some people, like Candy, doesn't really connect at, like, the public at large in the ways that he seems to think it will or that he hopes it will yeah I mean and then and also I think the idea that like if you try and play the middle then like you're just going to alienate both sides right. is a very like concrete both on a voting level like a political level and on a friendship level as well Right. Candy seems like Candy sort of reveals herself in this issue as like being the most pragmatic out of anyone yeah kind <laughs> because, of because like She is like, and she has said, like, she says this in an earlier issue in this uh, chunk of issues that, you know, like, I'm planning to be the White House chief of staff one day. Mm -hmm. Like, I know what's going on with you. Like, you're going to the top and, like, I'm going with you is basically Uh, her. Yeah, and has indicated that that has, like, she has long felt that he would be able to, like, pursue higher office after his time as mayor. She's like, yeah, she's, she's the true believer. She and January, in the end, are kind of like the two people who still believe in his vision, um, and like in his his inherent goodness. Yeah, I I mean, I almost feel like Candy because it it feels to me as though Candy has never been someone who really like cares how moral of a person Mitchell is. Like her her usual role is like the pragmatist in a lot of ways. Like How does this look for us from a PR perspective? Yeah. Things like that. And so I I almost feel like she, it doesn't really matter to her how much she believes in, like she is almost like the most political out of anyone. Yeah, it's true because she does often kind of lobby him to do like whatever, like the Catholic position on an issue would be. And also she like, even though he often goes the other way, she never is like, I can't be like a part of your administration because you won't like make what I think would be the right choice every time. She says to him specifically when they're talking about like the whole, we kind of glided over it, but the whole like uh, giving out free morning after pills, she says like, this is the reason why I love you. You take every issue kind of like on its own merits. You don't just like toe the party line. And in that way, yeah, it's true. She is sort of the most like the the most, I don't know if political is exactly the word I'd use. Pragmatic. yeah, or, or just like, maybe political is the right word in terms of like, she believes in the political system. And when she like looks at the country, she thinks it's of greater value to have someone who she believes truly gives like consideration to what is best for everyone when he makes his decisions than it is to have someone who makes all the decisions she would agree with, but just does so because like, that's what the Republican candidate is supposed to do. Right. And the, yeah, this and this conversation is continued into the conversation he has with Kremlin, which is like so. During this campaign tour thing, Kremlin texts him and bring and calls him back into New York, basically, mm-hmm. back to Coney Island. Yes, back to old Conesworth, the beautiful island of Coney. <laughs> sure, Kremlin talks about how the political system is rigged, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the choices and illusion created by the powerful to make the weak think they're not is uh is a pretty major i'd say thesis statement of this issue in a way yeah but yes but the main thing is that kremlin has these files that you know suzanne padilla was investigating originally he yeah he's like listen i've still got all like the white box stuff and now it's like worse because i have all of suzanne's notes so like become the great machine again or i'm gonna kill myself Yes, and it's very interesting because, like, I feel like at this point, the perspective is flipped because originally, like, Kremlin's, like, Kremlin just comes across like, oh, like, he's so short-sighted, like, he doesn't understand what Mitchell is trying to do, like, he has a very, like, basic understanding of morality, and then I think this is also, it's very interesting that this is where Kremlin's background as, like, someone who came from the Soviet Union is sort of, like pushed more to the forefront like his distrust of the political mechanism Mm -hmm. and like the ways that the powerful like just use their power to subjugate the the lower class so in a way like kremlin wanting him to become the great machine is like you can still be a good person basically yeah because like even though the great machine was not effective it felt like he was always he was doing the right thing by trying to help people Right. Exactly. And yes, so basically talking about how the the actions of someone who's like boots on the ground can do more than a politician. Uh, and then Mitchell also says that that what happened with Suzanne is just the beginning and that there's a war coming. Yes. Um, which is something you talked about earlier, but like he is sort of <laughs> because he's becoming president to ostensibly almost like set up a defense system for this like potential future in a way yes and uh and yeah we see this is like kind of the ultimate this whole scene is the the ultimate crystallization of the like hundred that we have seen sort of forming over the past couple story arcs insofar as like he lays out like i need to be in political power and here's why and here's what i'm willing to do to hold on to it when he like causes kremlin's gun to hold, go off as he's like holding it to his own head in order to that is the that that is like his big like supervillain moment that kind of like i think shatters any illusion of of like any kind of pure heroism in him yeah between to have to have the the bradbury thing and then immediately follow that with this scene with kremlin is kind of like regardless of whether or not you think like that his sort of utilitarian view is right in any kind of way or or what have you any sense that he's a hero is like completely gone yes that So he immediately before he causes the gun to. So Kremlin is basically like threatening to kill himself, saying like, if you don't like if if you're truly gone, then like there's no point in me still being alive, basically. And then once Mitchell confirms that he has not shared the file with other people, then is immediately like, okay. Then it's okay for you to kill yourself, which again, it's like it's a lot of different. Well, things. Well, more more than it's okay to you for you to kill yourself causes the well, gun just, to go off. Yes, like, I'm. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. actively commits the murder. I think it's fair to say. Yes, kills him. That definitely yes. Which it's uh, like you said, it crystallizes a lot of things. It crystallizes, I think, his that he will do literally anything to maintain his grip on power and his very like like you said. Like, very pragmatic, very utilitarian view that, like, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, therefore it's okay that I can kill one person yeah. if it ultimately is better for what I perceive to be the good of mankind as a whole. Yeah. And and that, like, the people who are close to me can remain close and remain under my protection for as long as they continue to have value, or, or maybe even like I guess more clearly to say his perspective would be until they're being around or being safe or what have you becomes more threatening than it is like useful right and then we finally we end with a big reveal yes he is so he is finishing his monologue to the jetpack he gets a call he's you know talking talking business with uh the person on the phone like it's clear that they both work in politics. You know, they're, they're just discussing the, the events of the day and things like that. Like, Mitchell was in Iraq recently. And then the final <laughs> reveal is he is talking to the president. The president is John McCain, and he is the vice president. Hence the title of the issue, Vice. Story by Adam McKay. Yes, um, <laughs> Adam McKay's <and his> Vice. <laughs> yes, uh, and there's there's lots of like hints building up. They make like he he refers to the observatory, which like is of course uh, one observatory circle is the vice presidential residence. The big one is uh, as we lead up to the big reveal, where we see the campaign, the McCain Hundred campaign poster, is that. He asks if he saw the um, the comic book of the two of them with Spider-Man on the front cover, which is like famously there's like an issue of Spider-Man with Obama on the cover being like, hey, thumbs up when Spider-Man is in the background, like taking his picture. And I think that's a funny bit that (laughs) it's like this. It like it's it came out very close to when this issue came out. It came out in like January of 2009. And this issue is from like like July 2010. 2010, Yeah. September September 2010. September 2010. Yeah. But that's so it'll be a few months earlier. But anyways. Yes. So quite a quite a final issue. Quite a roller coaster of a final issue. I'd say this is is like we talked about with why i think an extremely polarizing final issue where if you have like a discussion thread somewhere about the best endings people will say ex machina if you have a discussion thread going about the worst endings people will also say ex machina i think more so than why i can see why someone reading this might feel kind of like betrayed by the ending in a way yes like it it is quite quite a hit piece on the main protagonist of a character and like the character you've been rooting for for 49 issues yes and and not even that like i i also like people say that like it feels kind of abrupt to have him like morph into this person but i think that we both agree that the last basically 10 issues like it shows this dark side of him like it's i mean both in the tone of the the tone of the book becomes much darker Mm -hmm. like there's barely any whimsy or like any political issues that are, you know, sort of more lighthearted in nature. Like, smoke don't Smoke is sort of... in the rearview mirror to <laughs> say the least. Yes. Like, you don't get those scenes of where it's like him and Wiley and Candy and they're like all discussing an mm-hmm. issue. And maybe, and that's also maybe that's sort of interesting. I, that just sort of occurred to me that like the the deeper it goes, the less you see people discussing the issues. And people sort of like being able to have a conversation and mm-hmm. like to have there be like disagreement and sort yeah. of you arriving at this consensus and more about like I need to become more powerful so that I can advance my ideals more effectively. Yeah. And we we didn't really talk about it, but that is kind of like the the political thread that runs through the last arc and like the sort of the whole pro-life thing is that like his relationship with Wiley is like completely destroyed and they're like they're like backroom politicking each other and and he they they have an exchange where 100 is basically like so what are you mad about that that you threw me under the bus before I threw you under the bus and Wiley's response is like I'm mad because we used to be riding the same bus yes that the political element of it is that Wiley is trying to push this idea that to make morning after pills more readily available in the city to which you know 100 is not wanting to really take a stance on abortion and refuses to like share what his actual views on abortion are. And then this is so well, she, and again this sorry, I was, like Candy talks him into yes. This goes like, back to my my theory of it's, it's developing into a is Candy the ultimate villain <laughs> of ex machina <laughs> as like the like craven pragmatic political machine. The, but a yes, little Candy, <laughs> Yes. Candy suggests this idea that They leak the details of the idea out and then have 100 come out against it. So in order to like curry favor with the public, Mm -hmm. basically. And he ultimately gets on board with it because he's like, this actually also makes like Wily look good to the people he needs to look good to. Yes, it makes him look like someone with morals who like is trying to actually get things done. Yeah. And so ultimately, like it will help him as well. But I also feel like a lot of these last issues are him doing things. Rationalizing sort of, them when yes, yeah. rationalizing that they're actually helping people when ultimately it's in favor of his own like political advancement. Yeah. But yes, so I I thought this was a great <laughs> issue. Like it's it came very like and like I it was I I got the sense as we were getting towards the last few issues, I was like, is am I meant to be rooting for that? Like how like sort of how much am I meant to be like on hit on hundred side? throughout all of this and like how much is he sort of willing to give up his principles in order to like achieve this and the basically this gives you the answer Mm -hmm. it's it's very interesting to me that like i mean and it's like you know john mccain not it's not someone i would call like a cool guy (laughs) r.i.p but it, it is funny that like because of what the time period that this took place in like john mccain has to be like the art the like symbol of ultimate evil basically. <laughs> yeah or like, like yeah the, the reveal of like how things unfolded because hundred like ultimately went republican i almost i almost feel like then this would have been maybe a little like more out there but that if the reveal was like bush went for a third term <laughs> <laughs> bush, and 100 bush 100 <laughs> in 2008 that yes. would be wild um, yeah, and so like you know, like it doesn't quite have the same impact because like I think generally people are like, well, like McCain, like he sucked, but you know he he did have like some level of like principle to him. Yeah, but I was like I Bush also, or Trump. I think that that also yeah is like the uh, boy Bush, Bush and McCain owe Trump a, a massive debt of gratitude in terms <laughs> yes, of the image rehabilitation so. and Mitt Romney for that matter in terms yeah, of the, especially. Especially Bush. Yeah. But in terms of the imagery rehabilitation that they have gotten as a result of, like, a, a Trump presidency, like, I think to remember that this issue came out in 2010, the idea of, like, McCain having defeated Obama with the help of yeah. this guy who we just saw shoot his, like, father, essentially, in the head is, like, whoa! <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's less about McCain winning and more about Obama losing. Yeah, it, that, that is for sure the, like... Yeah, it's it's a reveal on the same level almost. I think as the like the the issue one page turn to see that there's one World Trade Center <laughs> tower still standing. The page turn to see the the McCain hundred presidential campaign poster is like oh, <gasps> I was I was shocked. <laughs> I was deeply shocked. Yeah. As I said at the start, my recollection of this series was that it was my favorite uh, of the Vaughn books. I still feel pretty comfortable standing by that. And the finale is a big part of that. I think it's a a really great final issue in terms of like putting a nice button on everything, kind of solidifying the, the character direction that... I agree. Was was established like kind of run in the at least a year like running up to this issue. Uh, Yeah, and it's it's good stuff. Like I think it for sure is a downer, but I think that that is not a good reason to dislike it. And I feel like the reason that both Y and X Machina in their finales get a lot of flack is because they're like kind of downers, and like you see bad things happen to characters who you're invested in. And they don't really get like any justice or any any like restitution or they don't get their happy ending, but I think that is definitely the point of Ex Machina and and you know why mm-hmm. you, you you can debate, but yeah, I don't I don't think that bad things happening to characters you like is a good reason to dismiss something, and I think this is a good uh, a good issue, a good finale, a good series. Yeah, and I mean like. Especially, uh, like, to do, to have an ending like this at a time when it felt like, I mean, I I think people were generally, like, politically hopeful during this period. Like, I mean, like, basically, like, the Obama years, certainly, like, in our lifetime, it feels, like, represented the most, like, optimism and, like, willingness to, like, believe that the political system could do, like, some kind of good. Mm -hmm and could like ultimately like be in the interest of the people like when wielded by the right hands so to do this ending it probably like hit like like it, it, it feels like an incredibly cynical ending oh yeah for sure and for an, for an obama era book to be like well the political machine like it'll ultimately just like destroy anyone who gets into it with any kind of intentions and like will ultimately be controlled by the people who most like hungrily seek power yeah and and i would say though that this isn't an obama era book really even though this issue comes no, out it's not. In, it is very much a bush yeah, book. but but the the genesis of the series is 9-11 essentially and the entire very book so. is is really about like second term bush era politics yes absolutely and yeah just post 9-11 bush politics in general yeah did you notice that in the photograph, so at the end it shows this photograph of Mitchell Bradbury and Kremlin. Mm, Cold chillin'. Yeah, did you notice that Mitchell <laughs> looks like Pete Buttigieg? <laughs> no. Uh, do you think he campaigned as Mayor Mitch? <laughs> <laughs> Pete Buttigieg <laughs> might actually be like <laughs> Whoa, like the wait. ideal <laughs> Mitchell 100 comparison <laughs> whoa that's really true I am, I am like, picturing the like Pete Buddha judge on Fox News explaining why he's pro-choice like town hall and being like oh yeah that's Mitchell 100 <laughs> like like really incarnate. intellectual like very like I'm just like tor- like I'm for things to, like make sense yeah and like I'm like a smart guy so I know how to do these things and like young and unproven yeah, energetic uh and kind of has like a, a like crossover appeal but also like never really gets his campaign going <laughs> in like a super serious way wow yeah the, the pete buddhist parallels <laughs> wow. are actually I'm almost, shocking I'm, I'm almost upset we didn't come to this earlier <laughs> because of how like well the fact that it's about it a former mayor who ultimately makes a presidential yes. run really should have uh <laughs> should have cued it off <laughs> Yeah, it really should have. And like I said, their physical resemblance <laughs> to each other. Oh wow. Ami-o-mai. Amiomai. But uh but yes, that that does it for Ex Machina. The sales uh, in this period down a bit from the beginning, uh, they were around fifteen thousand towards the earlier part of this uh, run, and they sort of tapered down towards ten thousand as, or like twelve thousand as, uh as we get closer to the end, and then the the last issue does spike back up, uh, understandably, closer to fifteen thousand. And I, I would imagine the inconsistent release schedule, <laughs> yeah, it takes a toll for sure, um, but like 15,000 a month or like an issue maybe is more accurate to say for uh like a creator owned book that is at issue 50 that's like certainly good sustainable numbers and and the trade paperbacks are regularly like topping the charts on that side of things so unsurprisingly like all of uh BKV's books it is a performer in like the bookstore market yeah as well so but the, i kind of see the end of this series as sort of an end of like a certain era of fawn's career because this is this is the last of his like 2000 like four or five era books to wrap up and then he doesn't really do anything for a couple of years and when he does it's like it's the private eye and saga and paper girls and like it it re- it feels like a new a new chapter of his career when he comes back for sure definitely so yeah phase. uh I guess this is kind of phase 2 I would say of his uh, of his work wrapped up. Yeah, like the the fact that like yeah, you know, we got we went back and forth a lot in talking about these books that like we're going back and forth in time like there was a time when he was writing all four books simultaneously yeah. between this why runaways and Ultimate X-Men. So, you know, as, as we move into the next phase, we will be talking about like books that all came that started after all these other books finished. so like he takes a little hiatus it's actually funny in tons of interviews that i read he is constantly talking even since like the end of why about how he wants to write like an original graphic novel and like but not not pride of baghdad like a bigger a bigger graphic novel he taught he was always talking about it and was kind of like so keep your eyes peeled and like he still has never done anything like that So I've I've always kind of been curious like what if we'll ever see that or what he had in mind or like if maybe the private eye he ended up splitting up and serializing or like yeah I'm just not sure it's it's funny that he talked about it so much in so many different interviews that I read and we've never even seen like a hint of something like that coming down the pipe. Yeah Brian K. Vaughn wrote an episode of Lost called Dead is Dead. Yes famously. But that's like also yeah thing. also the title of multiple issues that he's written i feel like and it was also the least watched episode <laughs> of lost ever uh that is funny because i feel like he is considered like one of the best lost writers well he was like he was sort of like a story guy right? yeah i think so but he he definitely has written a few episodes that are like w- would like if you were reading like a top 10 episodes list i feel like he would have a couple entries right yeah, um, yeah. I, I was, I was just looking at his sort of career arc because I was. So at this time, like, it's probably fair to say he's more focused on Hollywood stuff. Yeah, kind of, right? like I think he's like writing movie treatments for his own comics or like working with like the ones that are kind of in development. And this is this for sure is the era of like every like eight to twelve months you get an announcement about like what's going on with the. Why movie the X in a movie blah 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 that like <laughs> people people are like oh it's still happening it's still happening and then you just like don't hear anything about it for like another almost year and then someone is like it's still happening though and it's it's late 2011 so basically like a year and a bit after this ends that he gets tapped to be the showrunner for under the dome yes so that, you know, I assume took up a significant well, amount of his yeah, time. Well, yeah, uh, I was looking into it a little bit recently due to... Should we review Under the Dome season one? No. <laughs> oh, are you sure? <laughs> I, I'm not sure because I actually really like Under the Dome, the book. He only, he was only the showrunner for, for the one first season, season. Yeah. It's like 13 episodes probably. Yeah, I, I was looking into it because he has now like I think the longest stretch of time without like an issue or anything coming out with his name on it. He saga has been on hiatus since 2018 and he, he has not been like publishing anything else. And so people were, he was, he was tapped to like write uh, a treatment for something or like he was going to write the first, it was something crazy. He was going to write. Wait, we've talked about this before. I think we have things that he's writing scripts for. Uh, I know one of them for sure. Let me let me look at his IMDb to find if there's because I think there are two. And I know I know one absolutely. Okay, so one of one of them is Mask, apparently Mobile Armored Strike Command, which is like okay. it's like a GI Joe, basically like it's like a cartoon from you know a while ago, directed by F. Gary Gray. Interesting. But, of course, the one that you're probably thinking of is Jordan Vote roberts Untitled Gundam Project. <laughs> that is the crazy thing I was trying to remember, but I don't think it was the thing that I was looking at at the time. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> but he, yeah, there was there was something that he was, like, tapped to be a creator on. Is it Visionaries Knights of the Magical Light? No, it's it's not that important. But anyway, someone someone posted it, basically saying like, "Say goodbye to like Saga in 2021 because he just got hired to like do this development thing, and that's going to be taking up all his time." But so, anyways, I was looking into it, and he was show running Under the Dome while also working on I think Saga and maybe also Paper Girls. So like for sure, it was taking up some of his time, like to focus on that stuff, and also like I think. He has already demonstrated through his ability to balance like four ongoing series at the same time while also putting out an original graphic novel during that run, like that he can balance multiple projects. So I think he probably yeah, he he was focused on like Hollywood and TV stuff and maybe just like wanted a break after like a fairly crazy run <laughs> of of like having several hit series. Which were ongoing at the same time, and he like has just wrapped them up and has no monthly commitments for the first time in like eight years. Yeah, I mean, go off, King, take take a break. <laughs> Do take a break. Hey, take a take a break. Also, in the middle of saga, I know some people are quite unhappy that he it still has not come back, but you know, they they work hard for their money. Sure, I mean, he he's forty four years old. Like they like, also Lord they willing. also paused so that the Fiona Staples who does like most of the art and and when i say most of the art she pencils every issue but i think she does like most of the other art duties as well on several of them like also had a baby and was like i need a year off and he was like while you're my co-creator i'm not doing any filler issues with somebody else we'll resume when we can both like resume so like you know people have lives <laughs> sure but yes so yeah i think that does it for uh for x this is our, our longest episode in a while i imagine what do you know? What our longest episode is? What are we clocking in at? We we're definitely about, we're have. We're reaching the dentist's hour. <laughs> we we indeed are. We're about yeah. We're about at uh, two thirty right now. I remember editing one that after I cut substantial amounts of material was still like almost two forty five. I think so. we didn't <laughs> understanding comics over three hours. Or... It might be understanding comics. That's a long one. Uh, anyways, we don't need to pad our runtime by talking no, about we how long the episode don't. is. There's plenty of other... Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll get down closer to 2.15 by the time this is edited. 2.15! The Queer gold. Second Steely Dan reference. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to the show. Uh, please remember to nullify and uh, sanctify us. wherever you get your podcasts yes especially on apple podcasts give us uh give us as the two to five stars (laughs) yeah anything but one really will take (laughs) no i i i don't want to promote this concept like it's a joke you should give us five stars uh we have fun we have fun here but seriously give us five stars (laughs) give us the five star ratings we crave yes we're like Craven the Hunter, because we're craving the five stars. But that's going to do it for this week's episode. Next week, we will be discussing Saga issues 1 through 18. That's going to be fun. I'm excited for that one. But of course, until next time... <sighs> to, to be, be continued! continued. Uh, I think we just need to settle on a speed at which we say huh? that. <laughs> I like how slow it is. <laughs> Everyone else is dead. Dead. Uh, I'm just quickly going to send you a link to the first image that comes up when you Google I sleep meme. Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> It is of course someone's Kim Possible meme. Certainly, I'm not familiar with the jackal. I believe he appears in one episode. That's pretty good, but what? Why were you looking up the "I sleep" meme? Uh, because I was I was trying to work on something when when you were reading uh, Wiley's monologue about white guilt. I was going to say hundred. I sleep really sleep. <laughs> Yeah, tying into Wiley's overall wokeness, but there was not a good uh, opportunity to inject it.
1: But I did. <laughs> like you found the perfect vanity. time. Now. But I, yeah.
0: Well, I, I've just like had it open and then was like just looking at it, and then I was like, wait, is that Kim Possible? And I was like, wait, why is this the first image <laughs> result for the I sleep? Maybe it's <laughs> tailored towards your like searches. not a template. Maybe, but uh, I don't have a lot of Kim Possible searches going these Certainly days. Certainly not outside of an incognito browser. <laughs> <laughs> uh, those searches are, of course, specifically uh, for the course. jackal. Um, and so Alice and <laughs> Janney that, doing the jackal. That could be a factor. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>